I think the success that I've had in my career has been during the times when I was willing and interested in collaborating with someone who had a very different background from mine. I mean this both from the technical standpoint and from the standpoint of personalities, diversity standpoint. And whenever you collaborate with someone and you're willing to learn from them, you're going to come away as a person who really grows as an individual, not just in their career, but as a human being. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artist of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artist of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride the speed out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Our guest today has nearly two decades of information technology experience, spanning roles such as program manager at Google, an IT executive at IBM, and as an advisor to Fortune 500 companies. The early part of his career was focused on growing IBM's cloud business, and he was recognized for helping it reach over 1 million registered users, leading programs and projects across the United States and Europe, including the areas of machine learning, computational, natural language processing, and cloud computing. He's authored over 20 articles in professional, trade, and academic journals, hold six patents at USPTO, and has been awarded three corporate awards from IBM for his innovative work. When he's not busy writing code, drawing up design specs, publishing things, answering emails, or doing other business, you can find him brushing up on the latest computer science skills on Coursera, reading and writing about tech, or listening to audiobooks and podcasts. If he's especially bored, he's up in the sky, flying around Central Florida on a Cessna 172, going surfing, or spending time at the beach. Today, he is here to talk about his book, which is targeted at teams and individuals who are interested in building machine learning system implementations efficiently at scale. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, author of Serverless Machine Learning in Action, Carl Osipov. Carl, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I really look forward to our conversation. Oh, yeah, man. Same here. Let's start off by hearing about how you first got into kind of the data science world, the machine learning world. What drew you to this field? What were some of the challenges you faced breaking into the field? I got started with what we call as data science back when doing undergraduate research at the uh, University of Rochester. At the time, I focused very much on the machine learning topics. And back then, it was uh, interesting because people didn't really know what machine learning and data science are going to be like. So it was a time for experimentation. I remember writing my first neural network back in 2000. So back then, I was working on a project to process a digital image. And on that digital image, there were pictures of fruit. And uh, one of the projects I worked 
done was to try to count the number of uh, apples and oranges on the digital image. So I guess that was my first, let's say, machine learning slash data science project. It was a total failure, but I think what it taught me that it's extremely important to have enough computational capacity to succeed. So I bounced back and forth in my career between more of a machine learning oriented topics and distributed systems design topics. And I think I really started focusing on data science about 10 years ago in 2010s. I used to lead a project for IBM that focused on academic research collaboration and analytics. And back then I was helping the company build a product to analyze academic research publications, process unstructured data, structured data, and help come up with profiles of academic researchers. The goal then was to help foster collaboration across different academic institutions and help the administrators of those academic institutions get a better grasp on the portfolios of research that they're managing. That's pretty interesting, man. Some interesting early projects that you had. And thinking about where you started when you first started implementing you know, machine learning systems to where the state of the current world is now, how much more hyped has machine learning become since you first kind of broke into this? That's a fun question. I guess it comes down to how you define hype. And I think one way to look at hype is the relationship between publicity and results. So it's sort of a ratio, right, of publicity to results. And I think if you look at the hype that way, it's very interesting because when I was doing undergraduate research back in 2000, there was quite a bit of hype back then. And that was simply because people were interested in neural networks. Books were getting published in neural networks. There was a lot of interest in processing data, like the example that I gave was uh, image data with some of the early digital cameras back then. But the results were lacking. So I think if you look at hype that way, it was quite a bit hype. And then in the period of the 2000s, maybe early 2010s, we actually started getting real results. And I think if you look at the hype today, it's probably not as uh, hyped up as you would imagine, simply because we're actually delivering concrete results with data science, with machine learning. So the denominator of that ratio uh, has really gone up. I like that definition of just we're getting results. And so therefore, it's not as hyped as people think it is because we're actually delivering on what we're promising. So I like that. Where do you see now the field of machine learning headed in the next two to five years? So on this one, I don't think I have a unique perspective. I'm going to say that the results that are coming out of uh, the research community, the academic community around semi-supervised learning or self-supervised learning, they're very interesting. And going forward, right, in this time frame that you described, three, five years, we'll see machine learning algorithms and data science algorithms become more data efficient. We'll be able to train machine learning models with fewer annotations, with less labeled data. So overall, I think that's one key trend. But in addition to that, that was more of a technical description. I think in addition to that, what's interesting is that the tools of data science and tools of machine learning are becoming much more widely available, much more accessible. A specific example I can give you back 20 years ago when I was working on a neural network, I had to implement it in the C programming language, managing pointers and memory. So today, any undergraduate can pick up uh, a framework like PyTorch and start working on fairly sophisticated machine learning models. And what really gets me excited about this situation over the next three, five years is that the availability of compute is changing. So with some of the frameworks that are available today with serverless machine learning, it's possible for someone to pick up a machine learning framework and then launch their machine learning models on clouds. And that's where they get access to effectively unlimited compute, unlimited storage, tremendous networking. And I think that's the direction that will produce most spectacular results in the next few years. So as we kind of begin to move towards this 
expansion of the future where we've got more computation speed, where we need less data for our models to be trained on. What do you see being the biggest positive impact coming from this in the next two to five years? So the positive impact is going to be interesting because if you take a look at our IT industry, and I'm going to draw a comparison to the internet, the positive impact is not immediately clear. So usually what happens is that you have a gold rush of companies that are applying the new technologies. So think back in the early 2000s, the dot-com era, you had all these dot-com companies that promised positive results. And on the surface, it sounded great, right? With pets.com, getting your heavy pet food delivered right to your home sounded great. So I I think the situation today and over the next few years is going to be similar. We'll see a lot of promised results, but very few of them actually will pan out. And I think one of the exciting parts of the information technology industry is that we don't really know in advance what are going to be the most positive results. We don't really know how it's going to transform our lives. But I think the takeaway from this, the world is going to be changing and I think it's going to be changing for the better. And I think that's a positive result. And the flip side of this now, what do you think would be the scariest application of machine learning in the next two to five years? That's a great question. If we think about the scariest applications, I think the scariest applications are the ones that we do not anticipate. And here's what I mean by that. If you think about what internet has done to our day-to-day lives, to the way that we consume media, probably the scariest application of internet is fake news. It's scary not just to me, but to many politicians and many public institutions around the world. And fake news was predicted. If you look at science fiction publications, let me give you an example. Werner Vinge, a well-known science fiction author who actually coined the term singularity for artificial intelligence, has a great book called The Rainbow's End that came out somewhere in mid-2000s. And in there, he talks about this problem of fake news from the internet. So I think some of these scariest applications are the one that, ones that we're dismissing as science fiction today, but are actually going to become a reality. So to me, I think some of the scariest applications of machine learning are in the financial industry. So think about the system that we live in, capitalism, and the fact that today, if you take a look at the statistics, most of the trades in capital, think about trades in equities and stocks, in bonds, actually the majority of these trades are now fully automated. In other words, computers are making decisions of how we allocate capital in our system. And to me, this is potentially very scary because we have these systems, we do not fully understand what exactly that they're doing. We suspect that they can use the stock market to potentially communicate with each other, but we're not really doing a good job in terms of trying to drill deep into that black box of these trading decisions and understand what ramifications these trading decisions have in terms of allocating capital to some of the top companies in the world and deallocating capital from companies that uh, may need them. For example, companies that maybe are giving jobs to folks in North Carolina manufacturing furniture. So in a nutshell, I think these uh, concerns that sound like science fiction today are probably going to be the most scary ones 10 years down the road. Very, very interesting. It's a very unique perspective. I really enjoyed hearing that. So as practitioners of data science and machine learning, as it becomes more ubiquitous, more easy to use, easier to implement, what are some things that we should keep on top of our mind as areas of concerns so that we can kind of mitigate the risk of these scary applications? 
I think it comes down to education. I think the concepts behind machine learning are accessible at a fundamental level. And I think we should start educating people uh, throughout the world on artificial intelligence, starting with high school age. So I think that level of understanding is important. And then once we have the population that understands the concepts behind artificial intelligence, it's going to be for them to decide how to best regulate it, how to best apply it to their worlds, how to apply it to the economy in this case. In this vision of the future, as we start to move towards kind of a culture where concepts of artificial intelligence are a bit more ingrained from an earlier level in education, what do you think will separate the great data scientists from just the good ones? Oh, that's a great question. I think what will make data scientists of tomorrow successful is going to be more about the understanding of the human culture. So let me unpack that. I think what makes uh, uh, data scientists effective is not just understanding of the data or the tools for analyzing that data. I think it's about understanding the context in which that data is used. And let me give you a specific example. So I talked about the stock market. If you simply build a machine that's designed to analyze stock trades and optimize for increasing profits, the machine is not going to be able to recognize the fact that maximization of profits is going to lead potentially to loss of jobs or to reallocation of uh, capital in a way that disrupts families, causes concern to people around the world. And it takes this human perspective with data scientists, takes the understanding of the humanities to really make those decisions about how to best build systems that analyze data and then make decisions based on that data. So I think the data scientist of tomorrow is someone who knows the tools for data, but at the same time is also versed in concepts like ethics, is also versed in humanities and history, and is able to talk about the impact of the data science algorithms and data science systems. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. interesting. There's one thing to understand how to optimize your algorithm so that it produces a optimal result from the modeling perspective. And it's a whole nother thing to understand how that fits into the context of the world around you, because the optimal decision that a machine learning model produces may not be the optimal decision we're talking about people's lives, right? So I think that's a really interesting point you made there. I'd like to get into your book. Your book got a chance to go through it. Super interesting. And I guess we could start by pretty high level question here. What is serverless machine learning and how is it different from regular old fashioned machine learning? Sure. Let's dive deep into the book. So the book is not as philosophical at all as uh, our discussion so far. So it was uh, a really fun conversation about where is machine learning and where data science going. But the book is really an applied guide. Think of it almost as a roadmap for someone who is already familiar with machine learning, but wants to become a more valuable contributor to their project, to their team, to their organization. And specifically, the book is about this uh, idea of building machine learning systems in a way that 
allows a data scientist or a machine learning practitioner to become as productive as they can be, meaning that they focus on writing data science or machine learning code and minimizing the amount of time, the amount of effort that they spend on uh, operational concerns. So why is that important? I mentioned that cloud is something that's uh, impacting data science and machine learning a lot. And this book is really about helping the projects that need to scale up their machine learning models and specifically need to scale up to data sets that do not fit in memory or need to scale up to machine learning models that require many servers to train. Now, this may sound paradoxical. Like, why is the book about serverless machine learning if really it's about training across many servers? Well, serverless is a moniker that folks in the information technology industry have adopted to describe this model for programming systems, writing software, in a way that allows practitioners to just write software and really forget about the fact that there are servers running in the background. Now, of course, servers are still there. They still have limited amount of compute, limited amount of memory. But for a practitioner, serverless approach means that they don't need to worry about all those operational concerns. Like, how do you provision those servers? What kind of operating systems are running in those servers? Are those operating systems patched with the latest updates, etc.? It's really about making the practitioners, the data science practitioners, machine learning practitioners more productive. And if you have done some machine learning in the past, so if, if you have that experience, if you're thinking about scaling up your machine learning model, you have to ask yourself, okay, how much of my machine learning system, the one that I'll put into production, is actually going to be machine learning code? And there's some studies, like for example, there's a well-known research paper by a colleague from Google that shows that machine learning systems that go into production actually end up being roughly 5% machine learning code. So if you're asking yourself, look, I'm going to put this machine learning system that I've built into production. Once it's in production, will I spend most of my time worrying about these operational concerns, worrying about those 95% of my systems that are not machine learning code? And the book is really about helping you address that problem. The book is really about helping a practitioner focus on what creates value on that 5% machine learning code and minimize the amount of effort needed to build out the rest of the 95%. So what is the difference between machine learning code and machine learning platform? When I think about the machine learning code, I think broadly, this is the machine learning code that includes everything related to data ingest, data pre-processing, cleanup. This includes any feature engineering on that data, and also the traditional concept of uh, machine learning model and model training and model inference. And then finally, there's the question of, okay, how do you combine that code into a working system? So typically, you think about pipeline. We talk about a machine learning pipeline that takes data, trains a machine learning model, and that uses that model to, uh, to generate predictions or make classifications, etc. Now, that's what I mean by machine learning code. When I talk about the machine learning platform, it's that 95% that plays the supporting role. In other words, what is the platform that you're using to store the data? If you store the data, do you actually have to provision like a data warehouse instance to store that data or not? And if you do have to provision that instance, what does it mean to actually maintain it in production? Does it have to have regular updates? Does somebody have to go in, verify the health of that data store. So these are what I describe as operational concerns. So in the book, I describe the platform as uh, capabilities like data warehousing capabilities with interactive queries, serverless uh, object storage, framework for serving a machine learning model. In other words, the web 
serving infrastructure and several other components that make up this supporting infrastructure. And really what differentiates this book from some of the others in the marketplace that help you build machine learning systems is that I focus on this serverless concept, focus on minimizing the amount of effort that a machine learning practitioner or data science has to spend on maintaining that platform code. So helping avoid what I call a trap of uh, ML ops, machine learning operations, where a data scientist and machine learning practitioner builds a model, and then once the model goes into production, spends most of their time actually caring for the servers or allocating storage to make sure that the data actually is provided to the machine learning model. And you bring this up in your book as well, that the contemporary practice of machine learning tends to suck a lot of productivity out of the practitioners. So what is it about that contemporary practice? You might have just covered it, but if you could just kind of clearly make that line delineated for us, what, what is it about the contemporary practice of machine learning that tends to just suck out productivity from the practitioner? Absolutely. Let me give you a simple example. It's very easy to get started with machine learning and data science code. Imagine that you're a data scientist, you get a small data set, let's say you have a sample of data set that was maybe just uh, one, two gigabytes in size. You throw it into a Jupyter notebook and then maybe you apply your favorite framework. Maybe you like scikit-learn. So you use that scikit-learn framework to process data set. Maybe it's a data set about food deliveries, trying to predict the uh, estimated time of arrival for food delivery. So it's very easy to get started in a sense that you can build a reasonably well-performing model just off that data set in a Jupyter notebook within a matter of an hour or so using maybe a gradient-boosted decision trees. The next question is, what if the model that you've built is actually needed by the business and maybe it's needed for a project or for your organization? How do you go about using that model in production? And this is where the productivity drops for data scientists because you have somebody who is an expert in processing data, you have somebody who is an expert in analyzing different machine learning algorithm or different data science algorithms. And suddenly they're asked to build essentially a web server to serve that model. So you have somebody who is maybe going out, reading a few tutorials or looking at courses from online MOOCs, trying to actually build out parts of that compute infrastructure, when in reality, they don't really need to be built out. Much of the infrastructure that's needed to put machine learning model in production is already available as these serverless components from major public cloud providers from Amazon, Google, Microsoft. So really what this is about is making sure that the data scientists stay productive by working on what they do best, working with data, working with models, and helping them avoid spending time on integrating all these components of public cloud capabilities, data warehouses, serving infrastructure together, when in reality, there are frameworks that can help them do that. Absolutely agree with that. You know, been in that position myself, having to do something that I'm not really an expert in, it does take a lot of time to research, get up to speed, and then try to build it out and make it work. So I'm a huge proponent of everything you're talking about in your book here. So at what point then does it make sense for us to start using serverless machine learning? At what point can we say, all right, boss, we need to, we need to get on the serverless wave, increase my budget? It starts when the data set that you're working with no longer fits in memory. So if you have a data set that can be easily processed uh, where you can build a machine learning model or a data set in memory, you don't need serverless machine learning. However, if you find yourself in a situation where you think you can actually scale up your machine learning model efforts. So for example, there are well-known papers such as The Bitter Lesson from uh, Sutton, where he talks about using more compute, more data to scale up machine learning. 
There's another paper by Peter Norvik about the unreasonable effectiveness of data. So if you are a practitioner and you find yourself in a situation where you think you need to be able to scale up how well you do machine learning by using more compute, using more storage, essentially having all these computational capabilities internetworked together in a public cloud, then you start thinking about serverless machine learning. And really, the question is, if your data set fits in memory today, will it fit in memory after you put it into production? And for many companies, that answer is that we need to scale up machine learning sooner rather than later. You don't want to find yourself in a situation where you've built something that works on a small data set, but then once you've put it in production, you have to go back and tell your boss, hey, it used to work, but it doesn't work anymore because we didn't get enough compute. This is the kind of problem that should be solved in advance. Speaking of data storage, you talk about in your book two types of storage. We've got row-oriented storage and column-oriented storage. Can you talk to us about the difference between the two? Absolutely. And this is one of these distinctions that probably is not well known in the data science community. But if you want to, as a data scientist, if you want to be a more impactful contributor to your team, more productive member of your team, I think it's important to understand some of these engineering topics, like the one that you just described. So when I talk about the role-oriented story, think about the way that data is stored in traditional relational databases, something like Oracle, MySQL, PostgreSQL. Traditionally, those databases have actually been designed to to process data in rows or in blocks of rows. So for a concrete example, imagine something like an e-commerce database. So let's say you have an e-commerce database of orders, and maybe it's just three columns per row, a customer ID, a product ID, and a quantity of that product order. So with that kind of a database, with traditional relational databases, it's very easy to go in and make changes on a row by row. So for example, it's possible to have a transaction that updates the quantity of a product purchased by a customer something from a quantity two to a quantity five something. So that's the ideal use case for a relational database and for row-oriented storage. Now, the problem with row-oriented storage is that it's not well designed for data queries that are analytical for business intelligence style data queries. So what do I mean by that? Let's say you're a data scientist and your boss comes to you and says, hey, you have this e-commerce database. Help me figure out all the items that were purchased in bulk. When I say in bulk, I mean were purchased and quantity or two or more. Help me figure out how many customers purchased products in bulk. And for each product, tell me the number of customers that made that purchase. So as soon as you talk about these kinds of business intelligence style queries, business report type queries, where you have to process effectively the entire database, all these rows together to come back to a result. This is something I would describe as a many to few kind of a query. The row-oriented storage approach doesn't work very well. Instead, you need to start considering what's known as column-oriented storage. And that's available from technologies such as BigQuery, from Google Cloud. This is supported in AWS Athena and other modern serverless data warehouses. And the distinction between column-oriented storage and row-oriented storage is that instead of maintaining data on row-by-row basis, in row-oriented databases, there's actually a separate column stored as a file. So for example, there's a file that stores all the data related to the quantities purchased. And there's a separate file, essentially, that stores all the customer IDs and all the product IDs. 
identities. And when performing these analytical queries, when trying to answer the kinds of questions that I described, trying to understand the quantities of items purchased in bulk, it's possible to just load a single column, a single file worth of data into memory and process it as a single chunk of data. For example, looking at all those quantities where quantity is greater than one, for instance. This opens up a lot of optimizations for, for modern data, serverless data warehouses. For example, it's possible to load that data for a single column into cache efficiently. Also, it makes it possible to comp compress a lot of that data, compress those columns. That also makes for more efficient process and more efficient storage. And in general, whenever you try to answer these kinds of analytical queries about data, column-oriented storage tends to provide better performance that translates into lower latency times when answering questions. And it also translates into lower storage costs, which is a factor when you're storing the data in the cloud. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. And thank you so much for that. So I wonder now if we can get a hypothetical scenario where serverless machine learning would kind of be an ideal use case. Absolutely. So think about the scenario that I mentioned earlier. Think about an example where someone wants to do food delivery and as part of food delivery, they need to be able to predict ETAs, estimated time of arrivals. So let's talk about some of the features of this use case that makes serverless applicable. If you're trying to scale this kind of ETA prediction across the United States or maybe across North America, this means you're going to be able to make the predictions repeatedly for a large number of users. And also you want to be able to improve that prediction over over time. So what you want to be able to do is use the data that you've collected in the past to improve your predictions in the future. So potentially we're talking about examples where you're processing terabytes of data that's coming in from a variety of devices, from mobile devices, potentially from desktop applications, other devices. All that data needs to be stored so that later you can use that data to help improve ETA predictions. But at the same time, that data needs to be used for predictions in a streaming fashion, meaning that as piece of data comes in, as you have the information about, let's say, delivery happening between pickup location and the drop-off location, you need to be able to provide a prediction with very, very low latency. So these factors, massive amounts of data, streaming data, batch data that needs to be stored for historical reasons, and the need to improve the system over time, I would say this is a perfect type of a use case for serverless machine learning. And thank you so much for that. So now I kind of want to pick your brain on some aspects that I think our audience would love to get some insight on. I think of the field of data science machine learning to be quite a creative field and one that requires a bit of ingenuity, especially when it comes to feature engineering, because I think that's really the most crucial part of building out a model. So I was wondering what tips you can share with our audience so that we can be more thoughtful with our feature engineering. I agree. Feature engineering can be one of the most positively impactful exercises when building out a machine learning model or a data science model. So I think the key insight that I can share with you is that feature engineering should be treated more like science than engineering. And here's what I mean by that. I think even before starting with feature engineering, it's important to build out benchmark baseline models and evaluate those models in the absence of feature engineering. And then each feature engineering step, right, each step of where you're taking a raw data set and trying to 
to implement some algorithms that translate that row data set into additional columns in your structured data or maybe some additional input information in your unstructured data set. So before you even do that, make sure that you have a way of measuring these feature engineering steps independently. So let's take an example from the scenario that we just discussed, the scenario of doing ETA prediction for food delivery. So in that case, let's say you're trying to do predictions based on the pickup and the drop-off coordinates. And those coordinates are encoded as latitude and longitude locations. So one example of feature engineering could be to try to replace these lat-long coordinates that are extremely fine-grained. So actually, if you look at the GPS system, it turns out that it has a resolution of about three feet. So these are extremely fine-grained coordinates. But for something like food delivery ETA prediction, that's too fine-grained. I mean, if the restaurant that you're ordering from moves just down the block, that's not going to change the ETA of delivery by a significant amount. So one thing you may want to consider as a feature engineering exercise is that instead of using those raw latitude and longitude values, maybe you want to build up something like a grid over a map where you use that grid as a substitute for the raw let long coordinates, right? So you can create almost like imagine a battleship style grid where you represent the location of different restaurants and locations of where the food needs to be delivered. That's a great feature engineering exercise. But the problem is if you try to perform it, you don't really know, for example, what kind of a grid resolution you may want to put on the map. So this becomes an, another hyperparameter that you may want to tune in, in production. So this is where hyperparameter tuning and feature engineering really tie together. And this is where it really becomes more of a science. This is where you want to create hypotheses about the specific feature engineering experiment that I just described. Uh, this is where you may want to measure the performance of this feature engineering experiment on the models. And this is where you also may want to do some hyperparameter tuning to try different grid resolutions and see how well this, they work. So I think this key takeaway of treating feature engineering as this experimental process is probably one of the best things that you can do as a data scientist or as a machine learning professional. And brings me to my next question, I was going to ask you about hyperparameter tuning. I think when a lot of data scientists are first starting out, arbitrarily picking values for hyperparameters just so they can get their grid search to run or whatnot. What are some tips that you can share with our audience so that we can be more thoughtful in our hyperparameter tuning? So grid search for hyperparameter tuning is my favorite pet peeve. I'm still seeing many publications today that use grid search. And I think anytime that somebody's putting out a blog post or putting out code that uses grid search for hyperparameter tuning, that needs to come with a huge disclaimer, something along the lines of, you know, this is a temporary hack and needs to be fixed later. So today it's well known, right, that instead of using grid search, other techniques such as uh, random search of parameters and using Bayesian techniques that use the history of hyperparameter tuning to improve future results, these give better results uh, overall in, in practice. So I think the first comment that I would make is avoid using grid search in the first place. But if you do decide to get started with hyperparameter tuning, I think what you need to be focused on is building out a pipeline that allows you to do hyperparameter tuning rigorously and allows you to capture the results of hyperparameter tuning. Because as I talk in serverless machine learning, it's very important to establish this end-to-end -end pipeline from the data coming in to machine learning model and production on the other side of the pipeline. And as part of that pipeline, you want to capture the results of your hyperparameter tuning experiments and then use that data, right? As data scientists, we should be using the data that we produce ourselves. We should be using that data to drive the hyperparameter tuning process. And what this means in practice is that once you've launched some of these hyperparameter tuning experiments, you want to make sure that you capture all the information that went into the experiment. Everything starting from the details of which elements of the data, which records in the data were used as part of hyperparameter tuning, all the way down to the specific 
specific algorithms that you're using to build out the machine learning model and everything, including the location for where the machine learning model is going to be deployed. Because if you're deploying your machine learning model as an online interface, you're going to see much different kind of behavior for machine learning model than if you're deploying that machine learning model where it's used for batch data processing. So capturing as much information as you can in your machine learning pipeline in order to run hyperparameter tuning experiments is critical. And this is one of the topics that I discuss in depth in serverless machine learning group. And you mentioned end-to-end machine learning, and I think a lot of people who are breaking into the field or maybe more in a research type of role where they're kind of just working on stuff on their local machines, don't really deploy anything to production, they don't get too much of an opportunity to actually think about or necessarily look at what needs to be monitored and tracked once the model is deployed. So what are some things that you think data scientists who are kind of breaking into the field should go and research and study up on? specifically with regards to monitor and and tracking a model from both, you know, kind of the business perspective and from a data science perspective? These are two very different perspectives. So let me break that question up a little bit and talk about things that I think data scientists need to be incorporating into their workflows today. And then I'll talk about the business side of things as well. So I think data scientists who are just breaking into the field today need to spend some time with tools such as MLflow, for example. So MLflow is an open source project. It helps data scientists capture their data science and machine learning experiments. It also provides some visualizations of graphic capabilities. So tools like that should start becoming more popular in the workflow of a modern data scientist. Once a machine learning model is in production, you definitely need to be able to monitor some of these technical concerns about the model, right? The availability, the latency, all of this information is actually available in most cases from a public cloud provider that can host a machine learning model for you. So if you're a data science practitioner, you need to understand what's available in clouds today to give you this kind of technical operational information about the machine learning model that's served Now, when it comes down to new data that comes in after you put the machine learning model in production, I think one of the least underused tools today in the data scientist toolbox is the central limit theorem in statistics. And when I talk to many junior data scientists that are graduating out of colleges or out of boot camps, I don't think the idea of central limit theorem really is getting applied in practice. So fundamentally, think about it this way. Even if the distribution, if the probability distribution of your data is is not normal, is not normally distributed. The means of samples from your probability distributions, if those means exist, are going to be normally distributed. And this is a very important indicator for new data that comes in after the machine learning model is is put in production. So if you can compare the means of these samples for the data that comes in post-deployment, post-putting the machine learning model in production, and you see huge deviation in those normal distributions compared to the historical data, to the data that you actually used before putting the model in production. This is a huge alert to the data scientists that something's not going to work right. So I think this is one of these metrics that definitely need to be used more often. So central limit theorem and applications of central limit theorem are definitely one of these underused tools that I'm seeing today. And then the other part is you asked me about the business and how do you track the machine learning model from the business point of view as soon as it's put in production. I think the business analysts need to think not just about a model, but about the reasons why the model exists in the first place. So we talked about doing ETA delivery for food. I think the business analysts 
analyst needs to be there thinking not just about the metrics like are the ETAs accurate, but the business analyst needs to be thinking about what was the business case for deploying that prediction in the first place? What is the product that's being used to actually do those kinds of predictions? And the business analyst should be the one raising the alarm if the company or maybe the project has decided that, hey, maybe ETAs is not something that we want to predict in our product. Maybe instead of focusing on doing the prediction for food delivery time, we should instead focus on predicting customer satisfaction with the delivery. And the ETA is just a small part of it. So I think the business analyst is there to provide context for why the machine learning model exists. Thank you for that. Switching gears in terms of questions here, you know, as somebody who's been a practitioner of machine learning for you know, nearly two decades, over two decades, I'm wondering how you view the field. Do you view it more as a art or more as a hard science? I think whether the field is an art or science is more of a question of how does a particular practitioner approaches it. I think some practitioners approach the field clearly as a science. So when I talk about the science, I think about the possible. So if you're a scientist, you're thinking about what are the possibilities, what can be done with machine learning? And then the process for you is communication, right? Telling others about what you found in terms of what's possible, maybe telling others about your state of the art results in machine learning and working on experiments, working on different projects, working trying to understand what else is possible in the field. So I think some individuals, some practitioners definitely approach machine learning as a science, but it's also possible to approach it as an art in many different ways. So when I think about applications of machine learning to something like generative adversarial networks, the GANs, and some of the possibilities there in terms of creating stylized art, I think this is transcending uh, science and it's clearly venturing into the art territory. And I say that because individuals suddenly look at the subjective aspect. So it's not just about stylizing somebody's portrait. It's not about maybe representing somebody's portrait in the style of Monet or representing somebody's portrait in the style of Van Gogh. It's really about how that stylization, how that image is going to be perceived by the audience. And I think as soon as you start thinking about this interaction of the impact of the work that you're doing on, uh, on the the individuals and the people and your audience potentially on, on the culture, it becomes more of an art. And in what ways do you think the creative process tends to manifest itself when we're working on a machine learning project? We spoke about feature engineering. I think feature engineering is still one of the most creative aspects of, of machine learning today. If you take a look at some of the results that are coming out in auto ML space, they attempt to replace feature engineering or automate some of the most common feature engineering tasks. But I think as a human being, if you can take a look at the problem and try to come up with creative feature engineering solutions, uh, you're still going to be able to defeat these automated approaches that we're seeing from driverless AIs, I've heard both in some cases so from auto ML or from auto AI technologies. So this is definitely one of these fields where somebody can demonstrate their creativity in the sense that as a practitioner, you can find unexpected solutions to well-understood problems. I'm thinking about, you talked about my experience with machine learning. I think the first time that I discovered that machine learning itself can be creative was back again when I was working in undergraduate research. And at that time, we were looking at the results of applying genetic algorithms. 
algorithms. Now, I know some in the audience will talk about genetic algorithms as maybe on the sidelines of machine learning or the sidelines of data science, but this was an application of genetic algorithms to the video game Pac-Man. So way before uh, DeepMind and those Atari games, somebody at the uh, University of Rochester decided to implement genetic algorithms to train a program to play Pac-Man. So everybody has seen Pac-Man. This is where the little yellow circle is running around and eating little berries in a labyrinth and maze. And one of the things that happens in the maze is that there are these blinking lights. And if you navigate your character, navigate that little yellow circle to eat one of the blinking lights, then the rules of the game change 180%. So instead of your Pac-Man getting chased by ghosts, the ghosts become the hunted let's put it that way, and the Pac-Man can actually start chasing those ghosts and basically chasing them down for, for points. So the reason I bring this up, I think the first time I realized that algorithms, genetic algorithms in this case, can be created is when this program found a creative solution. It would navigate all the way to one of those blinking lights in the Pac-Man labyrinth, the Pac-Man maze, but actually it would not swallow that little blinking light. In other words, it would not change the rules of the game. It would simply shuffle back and forth right next to that blinking light until all the ghosts chasing Pac-Man would come close. And then it will swallow the blinking light and then go back and actually achieve high score by chasing down those ghosts for, for points. So I've never seen that solution myself. I'm sure that as a human being, somebody could have invented that solution on their own. But there I've seen an example of an algorithm identifying a creative solution on itself. So the reason I tell this story is not to say that genetic algorithms are the uh, best thing since the slice Right. To the contrary, I think what's important here is recognizing that there's creativity in the combination of a data scientist or a machine learning practitioner's expertise and the capability of the algorithm. So if you combine the two together, like in this example with Pac-Man, you had the undergraduate researcher, you had the Pac-Man game, but combined together, the result was really creative. So I think it would be great if going forward, we, learn, we all learn to be more creative by combining our expertise, our knowledge of data tools, techniques, with algorithms that deliver creative results. Thank you very much for sharing that. That was a really interesting story. Really, really enjoyed hearing that. Thank you. So I was wondering if we can get into a little bit of your experience at Google. So while you were at Google, you had the opportunity to work with some of the foremost experts in machine learning. You helped manage the company's efforts to democratize artificial intelligence. I'm curious, what does it mean to you for artificial intelligence to be democratized? I think the best way to explain it would be by contrasting the situation with artificial intelligence today to where it was back when I was doing undergraduate research. So back then, machine learning and some of the techniques of what eventually became known as data science were very much for the in-crowd. So here's what I mean by that. Academics would describe these techniques to each other in research publications, and there was a fairly significant barrier to into the field. So if you wanted to understand machine learning, for example, it was nearly impossible to do that just by picking up research papers and trying to study that on your own. You really needed to have guidance from a professor, from a graduate student, from a mentor, really. And I think what has changed today is that artificial intelligence has become more democratized. It has become more widely available to, to students and others who are interested in artificial intelligence. It became more widely available to the people simply because of availability of MOOCs, online courses, and simply because so many more people have started getting into the field and trying to teach artificial intelligence to somebody who is just starting out, trying to help somebody understand it from scratch instead of expecting that somebody has to go through courses in linear algebra and calculus before they can even pick up the uh, the paper. So 
To me, really what it means to democratize artificial intelligence is really to try to achieve this, uh, this goal that I'm describing. First of all, making sure that people are educated on artificial intelligence from a fairly early age, from uh, let's say high school age, early teens. And then I hope to see the tools of artificial intelligence be used more widely with the hope that people can become more creative when using these tools, create better solutions for the world. And what would you say was the biggest lesson you learned about democratization of AI while you're over there at Google? I think the biggest lesson that I learned is that trying to democratize artificial intelligence is a challenge that requires more than just one company and probably more than just one industry to be successful. So I mentioned education, even high school level education. I think what's needed here is an effort at the scale of governments and changes the scale of public policy. And only when the next generation, uh, next generation of students who are uh, graduating high school, maybe in the next four years or so, if they're able to really understand the basics of these tools and then start applying those tools as part of their undergraduate studies, maybe if they decide to pursue studies in academia, I think this is where we're going to see really fundamental transformation of our society and of our economy based on the tools of artificial intelligence. So you've got a quite prolific track record of you know patents, inventions, and publications that you've done. I'm wondering what is your most favorite one or the one that you are most proud of? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I guess they're like children. They're all, all my favorite. And if I were to highlight some of them, I think for this audience, probably the one that's most relevant is uh, a pattern that has to do with ontology alignment. So I used to work on uh, something that's called industry models. And when you think about industry models, this is about creating massive data warehouses for large companies. Imagine you're working with uh, two major retailers, and these two major retailers decide to merge together, decide to merge their IT operations. And then the question is, how can they take their existing data warehouses, think about all that structured data that exists with retailers, and make sure that they build a single data warehouse so they do not have these separate silos. So one of the patterns that I have is on this problem of ontology alignment, which is about applying machine learning techniques to process the documentation for the data in these data warehouses from, for example, from two different retailers, and identify when there's a match. So an example of a match could be if you have one data warehouse that describes something like uh, a customer purchase, okay, so uses the terminology of a customer purchase, and then another data warehouse uses the terminology of a customer order. So if you're talking about thousands and thousands of these different kinds of entries in your data warehouse, a system described in the patent, disclosed in the patent, is actually automatically identifying these kinds of matches. So instead of human beings having to go step by step and figure out this problem, which is order n squared, of how does one data warehouse match to another data warehouse, the machine learning algorithms tries to rank the best matches so that human beings can come in and then say whether the matching was successful or not. So that's, I think that's one of the more interesting patterns. That's actually super interesting because I'm working on something very similar at work, actually. So I'm going to have to go check out your papers. <laughs> I feel like there's something in there that's going to help me uh, tackle something I'm working on at work. So we have this system where we, essentially what you're describing, right? We have engineers drawing up designs and the fields that they have could have different names, but they mean the same thing. And when we're loading these Excel documents up into our system to have an easy way to kind of map them to a the appropriate kind of internal code that we have, if that makes sense. Um, but the spirit of what you described, it sounds like it's going to help me attack that problem. So I will definitely have to check that out. 
That's great. Sounds like it can be a fun natural language processing project combined with ML. Yeah. So which of your publications, your patents, do you think are most applicable to our current times? So there's one patent disclosure that I have. I think it's still going through the processes at the United States Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO. And that one has to do with uh, differential privacy. So when I talk about differential privacy, think about this problem of de-anonymizing data. So if you think about collecting data at scale, so for example, imagine data that's coming in from personal wearable devices. That might be data that includes uh, somebody's location, Uh, that might include somebody's heartbeat rate, that may include somebody's health data. So I think it's very important for the current times to ensure that that data stays anonymized if the user wants it to be anonymized. And let me give you an example of why and how it's possible to de-anonymize data in some situations. So for instance, if you have the data that describes somebody's personal locations from personal device, like imagine wearing a device on the wrist, let's say somebody has access to that data. And at the same time, somebody has access to a different data set that describes somebody's location, for example, based on the cell tower where they've connected to their cell phone. In many cases, simply by combining these two different data sets together, it's possible to make a very good guess about this matches between these two different data sets. In other words, simply by looking about the individual's heart rate and individual's location on their personal device and the individual's location based on the cell phone tower that they're connected to, it's possible to actually make an educated guess about the identity of that individual. Maybe find out the health data of that individual from their wearable device. And obviously, this is something that people want to avoid, right? People want to care about their privacy and want to avoid the inadvertent disclosure of that health data. So I think that patent has to do with providing some guarantees. The patent describes how to rescale the data sets from personal wearable devices to essentially minimize the chances of this inadvertent disclosure of personal health data so that the chances of that disclosure are constant and are low. For example, you can say, hey, I'm agreeing to share some data about my personal health as long as the chances of that data becoming de-anonymized are no better than one out of 100, right? 1%. So providing these kind of privacy guarantees, I think is important for the industry going forward. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that. Privacy is huge now, especially that we got all this data being collected and from all this tech that we have that, like you mentioned, wearable devices and stuff. So thank you for that. Without a doubt, the technical skills are super important in your career as a data scientist. But what do you think are some of the soft skills that maybe data scientists are lacking that are really going to help them differentiate themselves from their competition? I frequently talk to junior data scientists. I actually have some mentees who are close to completing their degrees in data science or have already completed those degrees and are looking for jobs. So let me try to describe some of these recurring patterns that I'm seeing across my mentees. And if any of them are listening, I promise I'm going to keep it private. So I've got to apply some of these ideas from differential privacy to describe some of these soft skills. So I think it's very important for data scientists to become more effective at operating independently, but at the same time, making intelligent decisions at how to operate independently. And I think this is more important today than it used to be in the pre-COVID world. So today, more and more individuals are working remotely, working independently from home. And it's very important to be effective at managing your personal time and managing how you go about doing work. So I'm still seeing some of these more junior data scientists trying to 
look for a manager. And here's what I mean by that. They're trying to look for someone who will affirm their day-to-day to-dos, their day-to-day activities. And it almost comes down to, uh, let's say, a junior data scientist saying, hey, here's my to-do list. Please, Mr. Manager, check it for me and tell me that this to-do list is okay. And I think as uh, data scientists are progressing along their career path, it's very important to be able to think not just in terms of a simple to-do list. I think to-do lists are great, but they're a way of organizing personal activity. I think if you go out and talk to somebody about what you're working on, it's very important to change the language and talk more about the success metrics, talk more about the objectives of what you're trying to achieve, and then talk about why and when you're going to be successful. So I think really to help data scientists become more senior in their careers, they are going to have to change about how they think about their uh, responsibilities and focus more on making sure they're delivering results that are successful and can provide measurable success. It reminds me of something that Seth Godin talks about in his book, Lynchpins. He talks about the ability to be able to navigate, not with a step-by-step set of directions, but with a compass. Because when you have a compass, you can still navigate through the ambiguity and, and find out how to get to where you need to go. But when you're on a step-by-step map, once you take a wrong turn, it's difficult for you to get right back onto course. So that kind of reminded me of that. So do you have any tips for a data scientist who might find themselves having to present to a non-technical audience or to a room full of executives? I think going back to this question of the recurring patterns that I'm seeing with data scientists and some of the mistakes that they make when speaking to executive audience, I would emphasize focusing as a data scientist, I think you should be able to review this idea of counterfactuals and the role that counterfactuals, or if you'd like, these are what if kind of questions play in decision making. Too often data scientists focus on the solution. So definitely, if you're a data scientist and if you have a degree in data science, experience in data science, you already have enough expertise to get yourself into the room of executives with your knowledge of how to build the solution. But for decision makers, for executives, it's far more important to understand the problem and the these what-ifs around the problem. Trying to understand is the problem worth solving in the first place? Trying to understand the context around the problem. If the situation changes, will the problem still be relevant, right? So the example that we gave was the, we discussed earlier was the food delivery ETAs. This kind of use case has become more important since the economic environment changed with with COVID. So trying to understand the factors of what is possible around the problem, what is impacting the problem, what is impacting the measures of success for solving the problem. These are far more important for a data scientist to understand if they want to get in front of the executives and be a participant in the decision-making process. So I think that's one of the keys for data scientists to develop in their career path. And how could a data scientist develop their business acumen or their product sense so that they can communicate in that same language as, as these executives? I don't think there's one easy solution. There are different approaches. I think a lengthy approach, but the one that is probably the most effective is trying to start a company on your own and try to make that company successful. So if you have to actually wear multiple hats and act both as a data scientist and as an owner and a key manager of the company, uh, that's a great way to learn. 
Unfortunately, this option is not available to everybody. Of course, there are other options. There are options of looking at MDAs, but I would recommend reading about some of the basics in the business from the standpoint of newspapers. I think if somebody is a data scientist and they want to understand business better and com- communicate in the right language, pick up a copy of News Journal. Open marketwatch.com and try to read it on a daily basis. Try to understand what's going on in the economy. And then once you have that basic understanding of how the landscape of the marketplace is changing, ask yourself, what does it mean for the company where I am employed? What does it mean for the project that I'm working on? And ultimately, what does it going to mean for the success of my customers? So what advice or insight can you share with people who are breaking into data science and they're looking at these job postings and some of them just look like they want an entire team rolled up into one person and then they end up feeling like discouraged and dejected and don't even bother applying. What advice or insight can you share with them? I would say if there's a job description, if there's a job role that you're after and somewhere in the online posting, the requirements are too harsh, ignore them. I would say never feel rejected or never feel like you should not apply for your dream role if maybe there are too many requirements there. Managers and HR have tremendous flexibility in terms of who they hire. And ultimately, I think if you continue applying and you continue improving over time, continue learning, understanding what kind of skills are asked for in the interviews and what kind of skills are asked for by hiring managers, you're going to be successful. And I think the most important lesson there is to be persistent and continue focusing on on that one successful outcome. You only need to be successful once. So don't worry about any of those individual failures. So last kind of formal question before we jump into a quick lightning round, and that is, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? I think I would like to encourage aspiring data scientists, aspiring machine learning practitioners to be open to working in adjacent fields. I think the success that I've had in my career has been during the times when I was willing and interested in collaborating with someone who had a very different background from mine. I mean this both from the technical standpoint and from the standpoint of personalities, diversity standpoint. And whenever you collaborate with someone and you're willing to learn from them, learn deeply from their background, you're going to come away as a person who really grows as an individual, not just in their career, but as a human being. Awesome advice and awesome insight from your journey. Appreciate you sharing that. So jumping into the lightning round here. First off, where can people find your book? The book is available from Manning Publishers. If you search for serverless machine learning on uh, Google search, it's going to be there in the first page. I think what uh, we're also going to do after this podcast is that once the podcast is available online, the publisher is going to describe this podcast episode or they're going to post about this podcast episode on Twitter. And if you're interested in learning about the book that way, you can follow the main publishers on Twitter. Or if you're interested, I'll continue posting about the book on my blog, cloudswiscarl.com. And we'll also be sharing a discount code that our audience can use to purchase that book as well. Um, Highly recommend everybody listening to purchase it. It's a really great book. So what's your data science superpower? My superpower is in being able to apply engineering to data science. If AI could answer any question for you, what would you ask? I would ask how to build a better AI. What do you believe that other people think is crazy? I think that once we build artificial general intelligence, it will have as much interest in conversing with human beings as human beings have in conversing with uh, cockroaches. If you could have a billboard anywhere, what would you put on it? 
I would say live your life with your eyes focused on the horizon and work without stumbling on a single stone. I like that. So what is an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time studying and researching on? I think every scientist should spend time studying mathematics and deepen their understanding of mathematics. And what would be the number one book, fiction, nonfiction, or maybe one of each that you would recommend our audience read? And what was your most impactful takeaway from it? I really recommend Judea's Pearl, The Book of Wine. And I recommend it because it does talk about the impact of ability to answer counterfactual questions, what if questions on human intelligence and the impact of counterfactuals, these what if kinds of questions in understanding causal relationships between events, understanding if something causes something else. Definitely check that out, the book of why. So if we can get a magic telephone that allowed you to contact 18-year-old Carl, what would you tell him? I think if I could get such a magic telephone, I would try to keep it around for as long as I can. And then at some point decide to give a call and say, everything's going to be okay. What's the best advice you have ever received? Be kind to people. What motivates you? My family. What song do you currently have on repeat? I don't have a song that's on repeat because on my playlist, the song keeps coming up in non-repeating order. All right. So how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? Easiest way is to Google my name, Google for Carl Asipov on Google search, or uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way to connect with me. My blog is on clouds with Carl, one word, cloudswithcarl.com. Or if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's just uh, clouds with Carl. Carl, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate you sharing your insights, going deep into your book. I know our audience is going to learn a ton from this episode, so I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for hosting me. It's a fun conversation.